You were called to make the world brighter, to run on the front lines, to cast vision where it had not yet landed. You were not gifted to be a random burst of energy, but a consistent force that enables the world to hear beauty, see potential, and write stories in a way that points the world to Jesus. Provoke and inspire. Welcome to the Provoke and Inspire podcast. My name is Ben Pierce. I am the host of the show. Uh, joining me, as always, is David, who's in Germany. Hello, everybody. Unfortunately, Chad and Luke cannot be with us, but fear not, we have a guest that will more than make up for those two, I promise. But before we get into that, I want to bring up again uh, some needs that we have within the missions organization that this podcast is a part of. Uh, so we're connected to something called Steiger, uh, and Steiger reaches and disciples global youth culture. So these are basically young people outside of the church that don't know Jesus, uh, which is a pretty large demographic. Uh, and we have some roles, some vacancies within our missions organization. Um, and, and so if you listen to this and you're inspired by it and you're challenged by it, and you would like to get involved uh, with the mission of Steiger, be a part of what we're doing there's all sorts of opportunities to be involved with training, uh, to be involved in mobilizing people into the mission field, um, working with our people in HR, uh, planning some of our evangelistic tours of hospitality is your gift, if operations uh, is your gift. There are lots of ways to contribute. Um, so steiger.org slash opportunities is where you can find out all of that information. And of course, if this podcast is encouraging, if after listening to this, you feel inspired by it, share the word, um, rate this podcast, review it on iTunes. Um, but otherwise, we're very excited about our guest. His name is Jonathan Merritt. Uh, I actually quoted him in a book that I just finished writing. And so the fact that we can have this conversation is pretty surreal for me. Uh, just to give you some information on him, Jonathan is one of the most prolific religion and culture writers, an award-winning contributor to The Atlantic. Uh, he has published thousands of articles in outlets such as USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. As a sought-after commentator, Jonathan has appeared on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, ABC, and NPR, I'm sure others as well. Uh, he holds two graduate degrees in religion and lives in Brooklyn, New York, although from what I understand, he moved from the Bible Belt, so quite the cultural uh, shift there. Uh, a couple things I want to mention, he has a podcast, Seekers and Speakers podcast. I'm assuming if you search that on iTunes and anywhere else the podcasts are available, you can find that, uh, so consider checking that out. Uh, but what I want to look at specifically is his latest book, which is Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the Provoke and Inspire podcast. Oh, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Of course, of course. So I, if, I, if you can bear with me, what I'm going to do is kind of set up a little context. I'll try to make it as brief as I can, but the reason why I want to do it is because uh, I think what we do, what our heart is on this podcast and sort of the the work that you are doing through this book uh, and your other writings, I think there's a cool intersection there. Uh, so so to give a little context, um, we are uh, speaking primarily through a lens of art and music. Uh, Chad, who's not on this podcast, was a former A&R guy with Tooth and Nail. Uh, we've all been in music um, pretty much our whole lives. Uh, and so this podcast started out as an attempt to... Uh, provoke and inspire Christian artists to to use their platform to uh, speak truth uh, through the uh, through their art their videos their music etc um, 
over time, this podcast has kind of evolved into being something that, that I think tries to answer the question, how can followers of Jesus be relevant, be effective in secular culture today? Uh, and so relevance is a huge, huge topic for us. It comes up all the time uh, because from my perspective and our perspective, there is a massive gap between church culture and, and honestly, normal people, secular culture. Uh, and I, I, from my perspective, Christians, so many Christians simply do not know how to communicate in a relevant way to those outside of the church. Uh, and so part of our heart is to challenge people to be like Jesus, uh, to learn the language of uh, today's culture, and to speak effectively. So not surprising, when when I got your book and started reading it, I, I was like, wow, there's a lot of overlap here. Uh, and so I was really excited about some of the, the, the themes you brought up. Um, so maybe as a, as a starting point, if you could just give us a kind of an overview of your book, its main themes, and, and then I think we can kind of camp out in some of the the things that I was like, uh, I don't know, or, or some questions or, or confusions I had, and we can kind of sit in, in some of those tensions. Yeah, so the book uh, is born out of an experience, an experience you mentioned uh, earlier, which was I, I moved from the Bible Belt to New York City and encountered not just culture shock, but an unexpected language barrier. I, I really... I could speak English as well as I always had, but I could no longer speak God. I really struggled to articulate my faith in a culture where people were speaking from, were drawing from different scripts. They were, they, they had different definitions to different words. Some of them didn't, had never encountered words that I had taken for granted all of my life. And uh, the result of this tension was, I stopped having spiritual conversations altogether. And what I realized through this project was that I was not alone, that tens of millions of Americans, even most Christians, uh, share this struggle, and that uh, we are, uh, by and large, uh, not even aware of the problem, much less addressing it. So I wanted to kind of like raise people's awareness and say, sacred words and spiritual conversations are dying. They're becoming endangered species in America. And here's why it matters. And here's what we can do about it. One of the areas I want to look at, um, you kind of describe the process uh, using sort of these three historical references. You describe orientation, disorientation, reorientation, or then packing, unpacking, repacking, order, disorder, reorder. Uh, and, and the quote um, of your book I want to read is it says, you say this in your book, you say, in order to speak God from scratch, we begin with what we've accepted. Then we break it down, challenging our preconceptions. Finally, we build it up again in a way that is more helpful, richer, and more beautiful. Um, and, and so my question to you is, is how, in, in a world that is obviously very relativized, in, in a world that is, is a lot, has a lot of sort of the effects of postmodernism, this seems like a very unguided, almost a pretty subjective process um, that could potentially lead to as many interpretations of words as there are interpreters. And so, I mean, because after all, helpful, richer, and more beautiful are, are pretty subjective uh, ways to analyze sacred words. So so I guess I would like some clarity on how how can we go about this process without just falling into this sort of postmodern black hole of, of limitless interpretations of sacred words? Yeah, so a couple of things, maybe a couple questions before the question, which is, um, 
you know, we know that these words are vanishing. We know that, uh, that these conversations are not happening. And I present that in the book. I did a study of over a thousand Americans. Uh, what I then did was I took a year and studied linguistics. And I found that uh, there are a number of languages every year that die. They just vanish. And there are a few that linguists call comeback languages. They come back. This is the way that language works. And you can, when a language is dying, you can approach it in a number of ways. Uh, the first way I call fossilization. That's the approach that says, don't touch my nice, neat, tidy system. Uh, I have a definition for every word and, and theological concept, and it is off limits. Uh, so do, don't challenge it. Don't question it. Don't ask me to wrestle with it. What it has meant for me is what it should always mean for all time. So you sort of circle the wagons and protect words. That's the uh, number one fastest way to kill a language. And so fossilization is just, uh, it's the exact opposite of what you want to do. Um, and, and, and that would be kind of a common consensus among linguists who basically disagree about everything, but they do agree about that. The second approach is, and liberals really love this approach, which is you just start pitching words. You go, oh, sin, that's all, that's antiquated, that's negative. We're not going to talk about sin, so we get rid of it. And we might replace it with something. We might say, oh, let's talk about brokenness, or let's talk about messiness. And you start pitching those words. And I list in the book a range of reasons why that's not a great approach either. Mm -hmm. uh, what I argue for instead is, is what uh, is the only way to bring back a language, which is to uh, allow language to transform. And I, and I call this approach transformation, uh, which is that we begin to wrestle with words and we allow those words to grow, morph, take on a newer, deeper, richer meanings. And um, that can feel somewhat subjective, uh, but it's not really subjective, it's communal. What I say is, is that this thing has to happen, that this process happens within community. It happens best within the community of faith. Now you say, well, that really feels squishy. What it is, is, is it's acknowledging the ways in which we have always uh, defined these words. In other words, uh, you pick, pick a word, like um, sin is a great word. Uh, where did your definition of sin come from? It was a definition that was handed to you. The, the Bible doesn't read like a dictionary. There are typically uh, a lot of different definitions. Uh, there are, first of all, there are usually a lot of different words for that concept. Then there are a lot of different definitions you can choose from that are kind of next to that concept. And we kind of pick one. And we often pick one based on the one that we like, the one that fits us the best, the one that helps us kind of address the needs of the world. We're kind of always doing this uh, to some extent. We're always kind of wrestling this way. Now, we've ceased to do that in uh, post-enlightenment modernity, where we've been very influenced by, in particular, dictionaries. And we've said, okay... Every word has a fixed universal definition for all time. So you kind of 
you pick one and you write it down on an index card and you go, this is what this means, memorize it, and now go argue with your friends that this is what they should believe too. Uh, and that certainly is one approach. What I argue uh, in the book is, is that it's not the best approach if what you hope to do is to revive the language of faith. Right. But is there, I mean, revival is certainly one thing, but does revival necessarily guarantee, or guarantees the wrong word maybe, but protect what it was originally trying to say? I mean, revival certainly is a good goal, but what if the revival produces something that's completely different from the original? Yeah, well, you'd have to ask, um, that, that would sort of beg the question, of what do you mean from the original and how do you understand language? Sure. In, other words, in other words, and I point this out in the book, this notion that there is a meaning to a word is not an ancient understanding of language. Uh, it's, uh, it's a kind of post-Miriam-Webster understanding. Right, right. It, cer it certainly would be foreign to, to ancient Jews. An ancient Jew would have no idea what you're talking about. They always believed there were many. And so, you know, when I was growing up, for example, uh, say 30 years before I was born, everybody in the West believed a parable had a meaning. Well, nobody, nobody believes that anymore. Nobody believes a parable has a meaning. Even if you read the most conservative scholars, people like Craig Blomberg, even the most evangelical scholars believe every parable has at least three meanings, that there right. were layers of meaning in ancient uh, linguistics, in ancient communication. And so this, the, there is a notion here that over time, language, meanings to words, uh, change. Now, that doesn't mean that it's, when, I, when you say subjective, it doesn't mean that red becomes blue, right? Uh, it doesn't mean, if, if a word can mean anything, then a word means nothing. But it means that we begin to conceptualize, kind of uh, circling around the same kind of core understanding of a word, we think of new ways of talking about that same concept that help us to address the uh, unique challenges of the world in which we live. So, so uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this process like a tree, where you have kind of the the trunk is that thing that anchors you, the kind of core kind of core concept. But over time, you will sprout new branches, and that is what has to happen in order for that language to live. Uh, Jonathan, I I you know I've been uh, doing most of my work for the last thirty years has been in in Europe, which is a lot further down the, the road than the U.S. is when it comes to not understanding religious words. Um, and so the way I've thought about this, for example, is when I talk about uh, when we do our shows and I talk about God, I don't say God because that conjures up a lot of strange ideas in people's minds. But I say uh, the ultimate life force. I said there's an ultimate life force that created everything. And then I go on to explain that that this this life force is not impersonal, but but uh, cares about us. I talk about how then I explain how he's like a good father, and um, he's not like the bad fathers that most people have experienced today. So I use I I I use the words like that to explain traditional Christian or spiritual words, but the meaning is the same. And so is that what you're saying? 
Is that is that the point you're making? That the yeah, that would be that would fall under um, what I would call substitution. And let me tell you kind of some of the reasons why it's uh, it's not the always the best approach. But I will say this: in some cases, for the sake of effectiveness, uh, it may be appropriate. It's just not scalable. In other words, like for you, your goal may be: I I really want to have a, a spiritual conversation with somebody who's who reacts in a certain way to the word God. And so you yeah. have to set that word aside temporarily. Right. And that can be somewhat appropriate. But then the question is, well, is it scalable? Can we all just get rid of God and start talking about create our own phrase? Well, it becomes problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, it, it, um, it shrinks the vocabulary of faith because words start becoming off limits. Well, I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to talk about sin. I don't want to talk about, and you, you end up having to almost invent your own sacred vocabulary. So it's a lot of work. And then once you transition out of your community to another community, you have to start over again, right? They may, they, there may have been five or 10 of those words that you pitched that they knew what they meant and you didn't have to start over but you did. So it shrinks the vocabulary. The other thing is, is that Christians, as well as Jews and Muslims, call ourselves people of the book, which means we have a sacred text. And eventually, as you talk to people about the ultimate life force, you will bring them back to the text, and now they've got that word God popping up all over again. And they, right, have, but, to, but, they have to confront it eventually. But they're able to confront it because they understand what I mean. They don't have they don't have this they don't have this idea of of just a dead empty church you know they understand that I mean something different and then they're able to hear that word because they understand what I mean it can be it can be somewhat effective for setting it aside for a period but eventually you have to come back to that word the other thing is the other thing is is that uh, what it what it kind of does, um, in a, at a philosophical level is, is it solves a problem that doesn't exist, and then it doesn't solve a problem that does exist. So I'll give you a great example. Um, you, you know, people are offended by the word God, and yet no one is offended by the word God. What do I mean? I mean, inherently, no one is offended by the letter G being placed next to the letter O being placed next to the letter D. There's nothing inherently offensive about an arrangement of letters. There's nothing inherently offensive about a sound, an intonation coming out of our mouth that sounds like God. Uh, a word is like an empty cardboard box. It's just a carrier. It has no meaning except the meaning that we give to it. What people are reacting to is that somebody has placed an idea inside that box, and they don't like that idea. So taking the idea of God as you understand it, pulling it out of that box and placing it into a new box didn't fix the problem, which was the idea was somehow offensive or broken or messed up. You just put it in a new box. Well, except that, yeah, except that they, they listened to what I had to say and I explained what, who God is, not this wrong idea they have about him that makes them reject and, and throw out Jesus altogether because they have this negative idea about this Jesus that they reject, I would reject too. And so I explain it in a way that they don't expect, 
then they're open to the idea of God. They're open to understand who he is. So I'm not, cha- I'm not, it, uh, I think I'm actually being culturally relevant when I do that. Yeah, it's, it's again, I would say it, it's totally appropriate on a case-by-case basis. If there is some kind of visceral activity, like visceral reaction in your cultural context, but uh, what I wouldn't do is then say, let's scale that. Let's encourage all Christian communities to go out into a postmodern, pluralistic, post-Christian world, create their own words to be replacement words for words that they think are problematic, which, by the way, is almost every word. So you go out, you create your own vocabulary, and then you have to do the next set of work where you have to then transition people to take that idea out of the new box that you created to put it back in the old box, and now they have an old idea. What often I think happens is, particularly if you're in relationship with a spiritually curious person is, is you can do the the work of redefining most times. And again, I don't know your context, so I can't speak for how, um, how maybe toxic that word is in your culture. It may be so toxic that it's just not possible to use that word. But what often can happen is, is we can have a first conversation that eliminates the necessity for a second conversation, which is, you have understood this word this way. Let's have a conversation about how you've understood that word. What are the problems with that word? And if there is a better way to imagine that word that's more true, that's good, that's beautiful, that would help to revive that word, to restore confidence in what that word means for you. I, my big thing in all this is I still, you mentioned the, the trunk in the, in the book and then also on this podcast that C.S. Lewis refers to and then the branches that kind of uh, reimagine the word, but they're still connected to that trunk. I, I'm still struggling to find the trunk, if I'm honest. I mean, you say, let's work together to find out what's true and meaningful. And, and maybe this is my, like you said, my, or your book says, my Greek training or my brain that just can't seem to get out of that idea that there has to be a definite answer. But otherwise, how do I not just float around in, in subjectivity? I still, I still don't feel like I've, I've truly understood your response to that. Well, the, well, the answer is one, a language is fluid. Mm-hmm. It is the way it works. I mean, you give me, give me a concrete example. Well, we'll talk, we talked about sin in the book. Well, um, I think I could. How, 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 would you, how would you define the word sin? No, I, I think, again, I think you're... I, when you kind of go through your list of words, I, for the most part, I was totally tracking with you because it, it seemed as though what you were doing is is over time, uh, the tendency can be that that our, our biases, our upbringing, our culture, the baggage that we bring to the table tends to have us focus too specifically or too narrowly on a particular definition of it. And so a lot of what you're talking about, like, for example, the, the pronouns, I, I personally have zero problem with imagining God both as a man and a woman. I, I don't know why that's a big deal in the first place, but and to me, that was an example of you saying, we have turned it into something that is just a partial view of the truth. And you, the, as I read through your chapter, it's kind of, I started to go, okay, this is a more holistic, this is a more accurate whole picture. I was tracking with that because that to me wasn't so much, we need to, this sort of, there's no reference. It's just sort of reimagining it. This sort of seemed to be, let's look at the history. Let's look at the interpretations. Let's, let's come together. And as a community, make sure we're looking at all of it that I can see. But then, then we go to a chapter or sorry, a word like um, family, like the family one, 
I I felt like I was left grasping a little bit for answers there because you you know you track the the changing perception of family through culture pop culture TV um, shows and then you kind of uh, illustrate how the, you know through your pastor who couldn't find an example of a traditional family in scripture um, and, and then you kind of just say you know God can work through all of it and I, I think there's a little bit of uh, description versus prescription confusion there from my perspective in terms of just because God doesn't, pers- you know, does he describes less than ideal, or let's say use your definition of sin, less than uh, the abundant life or the flourishing examples of family doesn't mean they don't exist. Well, I guess it, with- but of course, of course, when it comes from family, it gets uh, much more complicated than that, mm-hmm. because you see God giving people second wives as presents. You see God blessing uh, second marriages and children from second marriages. So right. it becomes becomes incredibly more complex. It's not just like, hey, here's what's happening. You see it actually happening uh, at the will of God, at the direction of God, uh, for example. You see the the seed of the Messiah coming through uh, second wives. And so it becomes, it does become, I think, with family, uh, incredibly uh, complex. But what I, I agree with you that, what I say is this, is that oftentimes when we talk about these branches, uh, the way that C.S. Lewis describes it uh, through these branches is is that there each of those is kind of getting at something. I often say it's the truth, but it's not the whole truth. So help me God. So I talk about how, for example, the word sin in the Bible morphs: sin as a stain, mm-hmm. uh, sin as a weight sin as a debt. And now, of course, we use like clinical language, sin sickness, or we would even use kind of a, uh, uh, the language of modernity of like problem solution. You have a sin problem. That's not New Testament language. Right. Right. I mean, you're, yeah. right. people, people, people who say to me, like, it's all subjective. You go to their church and they say you have a sin problem. It's like, where did you get that? You just came up with that. You're using 20th century. It's not New Testament language. You're just using, we're all, that. yes, there is subjectivity to language, and that's ubiquitous. There are just people who, there, there are p- two types of people in the world. People who recognize that they're using language subjectively and people who pretend they aren't. Uh, but everybody is. So there is a subjective, somewhat subjective nature where words are, are kind of coming alive uh, and defined by the cultures in which they're used. But each of those is getting at something. When I talk about sin as a weight, I'm, I'm kind of talking, I'm kind of implying things, and I'm learning about sin in a way that when I talk about sin as a debt, that it doesn't quite capture that, right? So for example, I say talking about sin as a sickness is helpful because it kind of talks about how oftentimes sin is something that infects us. It kind of comes upon us. But aren't you, aren't you doing the same thing again when you say like the substitutional thing? Well, you're still using the word sin, right? What you're doing is, is you're peeling back more layers of what sin looks like in every generation. Right. So, so whereas sin as a sickness kind of gets at, hey, sin is something that comes on us. It doesn't, for example, uh, talk about, it doesn't speak to responsibility. But wouldn't we say like right. sin also has a responsibility component? If you engage in a sin, you should be responsible for that. So then when we talk about sin as like rule breaking or lawlessness, well, we're kind of getting at that. But now sin is only kind of individualistic, but also sin sometimes is communal. So how do we talk about that? 
the sin is weight metaphor talks about sin in kind of a communal term, not just an individualistic term. So when we really want to talk about sin, as I say in the book, all of these branches form kind of a holistic picture of what sin looks like. And, and it creates this kind of unfolding or a, a growth in consciousness about these different spiritual concepts. And, and if you look at the history of the church, what I'm arguing is, is that oftentimes when it comes to these words, you're seeing an unfolding of understanding with every generation. We have stopped oftentimes participating this in, in participating in this in an active way because we fossilized the language and said, okay, yeah. that's it, no new branches. Yeah, no, and absolutely. And I, we often say that that isolation is our enemy, that when we, part of it is we're not really like Jesus. We're not really living with real people where I think that that these types of things would work themselves out more naturally because because we'd see the effects of the way we speak on people and it would cause us to want to speak in a way that's more clear. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and from that sense of sort of unpacking, let me just let me just pull out this one more. And again, I, I feel like we've kind of got at some of the things that I was wrestling with, but but the the word uh, creed that you look at was uh, caught me a little off guard um, because it, it seemed like the first place, at least in my mind, where all of a sudden you you kind of put some hard uh, like you call it like I'll just quote you. You say the creed the creeds anchor us in the historic faith, guarding against the temptation to move the goalposts back based on which direction culture seems to be advancing. In this way, the creeds provide both a time-tested method of discipleship and a historical guardrail. The creeds express who God is, what he's like, and how he saves. And so I, I read that, and I'm going, yeah, okay. I mean, a little bit, I'm a little bit confused why creeds somehow become that historic guardrail, but, but that is, at least it's a, it's a pretty strong statement. But then what I find very confusing is that right after that, you then go, but these things, it has, it cannot speak on. And, and you list kind of the what's what of uh, cultural battles of our day. I mean, the role of women, the nature of sexual orientation, the existence of hell and who ends up there, how to read the Bible or understand a special nature, and then politics, who to vote for. It almost kind of seems to say creeds guard us against succumbing to the pressures of our culture, but the very things our culture are wrestling with, they're off limits. And I, I just I just didn't understand that. Right. So what so what you that you use two words there. You use the singular and the plural version. And I wrote about the singular version. I wrote about the sure, creed. Okay, the, sure. The creed. Bad. Um, so, in other words, if you look at there, there are lots of different creeds and confessions that have mm -hmm. arisen, but there, there's kind of a central, the Nicene and, yeah. and the Apostles' Creed, uh, which have always been uh, since the foundation of our faith, kind of that historic. At the end of the day, what is the thing that sure. makes us Christian? Okay. Now, for many people, they would say. Uh, well, most people would say it's whatever I believe and probably whatever I think is important, right? So if you think um, if you think gay marriage is like your line in the sand, then somebody who disagrees with you about gay marriage is not a Christian. They're outside of the faith. So what I'm what I'm proposing in here is is that in the in the history of the church, this notion of a creed uh, as something that kind of unifies us is worth revisiting. And what happens is, is when we return to the things that, that the forebears of our faith have said, these are the, this is the, at the base. When you kind of peel back all that Christianity is and, and uh, has been and will be, when you peel all of that back, what's at the bottom, at the core? What are, what are the things that, that kind of are not for sale, right? So 
when we talk about like subjectivity or what's, what's open for discussion, what are the things that are not really up for discussion if what you hope to be is Christian? One of those things, for example, is the resurrection, right? If somebody says, well, the resurrection's uh, bollocks, that, doesn't, that never happened, or Jesus never existed. Well, I think we can fairly say, like, that may be true or untrue, and we can talk about whether we think that's true or untrue, but that's sort of a core of what it means to be Christian. And so for most people, most people cannot name with any level of kind of um, objectivity what, what actually makes someone a Christian versus not a Christian. And so the Creed chapter is sort of a, uh, my best attempt at getting to the core of that by, by essentially borrowing the way that the earliest Christians defined that faith. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I could just take this in a, a slightly different direction, uh, the thing I want to I want to bring up as it relates to words is is from my understanding of Scripture, um, Jesus and Paul and and the disciples and of course the early the early church uh, ruffled a lot of feathers. They upset culture and they um, they confronted things and and certainly they loved people and were relevant. Um, but the things that they said led to a lot of chaos. I mean, most of them were killed for what they said, for what they believed. Um, they, they spoke using words that their audience understood, but it certainly didn't spare them from um, being rejected, being despised, being mocked, being killed. Uh, and so the thing I want to ask you as it relates to trying to be relevant, as it relates to trying to communicate clearly um, where is, is the foolishness of the cross? Where is the confrontation of the gospel? Um, how does that factor into this? How do we have to, yes, try to be relevant um, while at the same time recognizing that there's going to be a countercultural cost and a, a confrontational element uh, to sharing the gospel? I think that, that uh, being countercultural is uh, absolutely essential uh, to what it means to be uh, a follower of Jesus. And that's why, one of the reasons why, uh, for me, um, I often resist this notion that, well, we have to move, we have to take any words that sound religious and really strip those out and right. then use words that sound really cool or whatever, because uh, what I've seen in my own generation, I've seen it certainly in New York City, that like, if all I want is a bunch of cool dressed people hanging out and some concert music, I can find someone here to do it better than your hipster church. So I don't really, if, if like all this is, is like, you know, um, some sort of cool ethos with Jesus wallpaper, it's not really going to be effective in like a truly post-Christian context like, I, like New York City. What people do look for is a sense of sacredness, uh, a sense of strangeness, uh, a sense of reverence. So, you know, I mean, in my church, my, uh, my church, you know, is even liturgical. And we have mm -hmm. lots and lots of young people coming. And they're coming because it feels so different, because we live in these kinds of rhythms. And here comes this countercultural expression that says, no, 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 we're going to, we're, this is, this is something other than what you've experienced Monday through Saturday. 
And I think that you're seeing kind of a, a bit of a revival in the, the countercultural or strange expressions of Christianity in the United States because of that. You know, one thing that, that we often say is that relevance is not about popularity, it's about clarity, that, that we want to be relevant so that we can be as clear as possible in communicating the gospel. And I, I feel like, um, I don't think that the only motivation, only, only heart behind sort of uh, changing the way we use words or even omitting words altogether is, is, is just because we saw sort of the, maybe the hypocrisy of our parents or this weird subculture that they created. I think there also is a, a capitulating to the, the difficulty of it or the counterculturalness of it, that there is a degree of that. Do you, do you not think that there's some temptation in, in reading your book through the false, through, maybe through a lens you don't intend and for it validating someone to say, man, I, I, don't want to be like that, or or they're really not prepared to count the cost of following Jesus in a in a world that is not always friendly. That there's some degree of that, an unwillingness to pay that cost. I no, uh, I would say the opposite is true. What I see in most evangelical churches is just about the easiest way of speaking God as possible. You go into a church, they can hand you a book by Wayne Grudem. There's your nice, easy index. You can say, here's what all of this means. You memorize it, and then you convince other people to kind of go out and just, quote, preach the gospel. So there's kind of a unidirectional empowerment for monologue. What I try to encourage in this book is, is this kind of, this way of being Christian will require you to be in a community with people who are not like you. Uh, you'll have to look someone in the eyes and say, here's what I mean when I say gospel. And that person says, let me tell you how that impacts me as a black person. Let me tell you how that impacts me as a woman. Let me tell you how that impacts me uh, as a refugee. Uh, To sit in those communities and to wrestle with these words, that is a very, very difficult. In fact, the the greatest risk, uh, the, the, the biggest risk factor that will prohibit the return of speaking God is just sheer laziness. Most people would rather have a set of index cards they can flip through that have all of these nice, tidy, nice, tidy definitions to all of these words that create their whatever their systematic theological framework is. But what I'm arguing for is something that, that is much more involved, that is much more time-consuming, that will require not just that you preach at people, but that you seek to be uh, to understand rather than you see rather than just seeking to be understood, that you learn to listen well, and that you're engaged in the type of conversation that will actually cost you something. Right. I think most people reading this won't be willing to do that. Sure. And I, again, I don't know if I, you know, again, I have my context is beyond America, and so maybe maybe it's influenced by that. But I, for me, I don't just I don't see laziness as maybe the 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 greatest barrier, honestly, I think it's that people don't, they don't want to rock the boat there. We live in a, like you, like you say in your book, we live in a culture that, that it's very pluralistic. It's very uh, relativistic. And, and so it's easier to just privatize your faith or to strip it of anything, any exclusionary claims or anything that again, and I'm not, I agree with you that a lot of things that Christians consider sacred, I, there's a ton on your list that I'm totally with you on. I think we add a ton of baggage to what it means to follow Jesus that's ridiculous, and that, that makes it very hard for people to want to listen. Um, I, I don't know. I just am pushing back a little bit that in my experience, what you have is you certainly have people who they have their strict fossilized definitions of things, and they know how to speak their church language, and they're, 
they're speaking that. Maybe some of them are going out and trying to use that. But for the most part, it's just in-house. And they're, they're just speaking to each other. And then you have people who I think go the opposite direction. And they say, man, I don't, I don't see how that works in the world. I don't want any part of that. And I guess I guess I don't so much that I'm kind of advocating for for this this middle ground. And I, I think maybe that's where we disagree just a little bit. Well, I I think I think I agree. I think, yes, we um, we probably agree on, as as you pointed out, I mean, we've yes, we focus some of our conversation on the points where there there is either disagreement or need for clarification on, on your right. end. But uh, we probably do agree on most. And it seems like given your mission and what you guys are trying to do. Uh, we're, we're, we're very much on the same page. I think, um, I think that there are, what I don't intend to say is, is here's why it's because of laziness mm-hmm. or here's why it's because of relativity, uh, or here or relativism, or here's why, because of, sure. uh, I don't think that you can, I don't think that you can provide like a one, one no. answer. Why? No. I mean, as I, I point out, I give the 13 reasons based on the survey, right. the 13 reasons why people often, run away from these things. And there are people who say, you know what, uh, these cause tension or arguments. So I'm just, I, I, I don't want the fight. So there are a lot of people that are, you're right, they resist. They say, you know, when it comes to a claim that feels exclusivistic, well, I don't want to sound like a fanatic. That was a, I don't want to sound like a fanatic or a religious extremist. That's a sure. big answer among a lot of people. So there are a lot of folks out there who, uh, who have the exact motivations uh, that you're talking about, and that is one of the big drivers. Now, I can't speak for the international context sure. because all of the research I did was uh, really looking at uh, the United States and what's going on here in the right. U.S. You, I think you, you two would be much better uh, equipped to speak to the context in which you serve. Yeah, I, I think for me, the heart of it is just trying to probably similar to what your book is doing, trying to look at the whole truth. And, and, and I simply believe that when it comes to why people are or are not speaking God, as you would say, I think a large part of it is simply the foolishness. People don't want to pay that cost. It, it's not so much that um, they're lazy, as you say, or, or that um, they maybe don't know how to. I, I think that yeah, certainly there's some learning involved, but a large part of it is that there's foolishness. You're not going to be cool. You're not going to be perfectly relevant, and that's part of it. I, I think that needs to be uh, taken into consideration in this conversation. Um, you know, and then then there are just some other things that would be good to talk about. I mean, I mean, you you mentioned these things that are not part of creeds. You know, like. Who ends up in heaven and hell? Uh, some issues related to sexuality, and there might be people listening, thinking, "Whoa, those are some pretty big issues." And and uh, I do think those are worthy of discussion. Uh, it just maybe isn't something that we can do right now in five minutes. Uh, I don't think that'd be fair to you, but but certainly they they merit serious consideration, don't you think? No, no, no. I I, I definitely I definitely what I'm not saying in that creed chapter is that these other issues aren't important. And I even say that in that chapter, I mean, gender, gender, sexuality, uh, eternal realities are all important. The question is, is if somebody diverges from your view on that, are they now are they a heretic? Are they cast out? Are they not worthy of listening to or being in community with? That's where we are. Right. Uh, many of us in the church, 
we we have yep. so many lines in the sand. It's like you take a half a step, and and uh, now you're being cast out as a heretic. And it's a it's a sub it's a highly subjective, a historical definition of what it means to be a Christian. Right. Again, I think part of the problem is we've lost the ability to have productive conversations. We we create these false dichotomies and these straw men arguments. Even as you said, can I disagree on these things and not be cast out, named a heretic? I don't know. Did you say thrown under a bus? I don't know. But all these, as if you know what I mean. Like why why does it have to be such an intense reaction? I think none of those things are appropriate. We. We need uh-huh. to loving loving someone has nothing to do with this. It, it, their their value is safe in God. It's just we need to be able to have good, meaningful discussions because I think there are some serious implications to the truth of these questions. But but to your point, I think what's happened is the conversations become so. Um, you know, I listened to a podcast you did recently, and and the way they treated you was horrible. And I was like, I was determined. I was like, we're going to have a good conversation because. It was just ridiculous. And it's like, how are we going to get anywhere if we can't love each other and speak, you know, even reasonably and calmly? So, so no, I, I, I think, unfortunately, these conversations have become off limits for a lot of people because of all of these things that get added to it in terms of the, like you said, being cast out, being treated horribly or, or saying that, you know, even making some of these on the list salvific when I think they're certainly not. And yet, I don't think we probably agree fully on this list. I mean, I think there are, you know, and, and this is a bit of a challenge of this conversation in general, is that how do we get to the truth? Because I believe in productive conversation, but ultimately I also believe that there is truth and that we can know it um, and that we need to search for it because, as I've said, the implications are serious. Well, yeah, and, you know, I could, I bet we could both guess which podcast you're referring to, um, which yeah. was, which was unfortunate. And, and was, I was brought on to talk about my book and was not, we were not talking so about my book. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, so we, we talked about a whole bunch of other things I was not prepared to talk to them about on my vacation, but regardless, I understand, uh, the reaction of people like that because they, there is such a fragility to their system. And so if you, if you poke at any of it and, and the, the tower begins to wobble, it makes sense that you would feel that there's this great need to mobilize and fight for it. Uh, I think in some ways that's one of the reasons why I wrote the Creed chapter to say, okay, what are the things that we really should? You know, like Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, well, just pity us all because everything, you know, you poke that and everything starts to fall apart. And so there are certain things that are, are uh, really you just can't let go of or the whole, you know, you pull the string and it all just sort of uh, comes apart. But I do think that that list has become massive. And now we're, now we're willing to fight over everything, to cast people out over nothing. And that, to me, I think is so unfortunate. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. that's just so unfortunate that we can't have... Uh, conversations where they say, you love Jesus, I love Jesus. You believe that Jesus died for all of us? So do I. You believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Yes, I do too. You believe that that believing in Jesus, placing your trust in Jesus matters? Great, so do I. Now let's talk about all these other really important issues that are that are that that we need to talk about, but we don't have to demonize, villainize, scream, shout, and, right. and um, caricature each other's positions 
in order to have those conversations. No. But you're exactly right. We have totally lost the ability, not just religious, I mean, political conversations. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've just lost the ability to have those kinds yeah. uh, of conversations. And really, this is why I like having a conversation like we're having, where it's respectful, but it's uh, direct. Yeah. Because what I really wanted to do in this book, I said, I, I know I don't have all the answers, yeah. but I have, I have a really good hunch that I'm asking good questions. Sure. And what I hope to do is, and I kind of say that in the book, like this is not a, intended to be a dictionary. I hope people will go, that's a great question. We should be asking that. That's a great question. We should be asking that. And maybe they come to a different conclusion than I did. And that's fine. Um, but I, I do think that these are incredibly pressing questions. Most people are not asking them and most people should be. Yeah. And not to mention, if, if we truly believe someone is, is wrong, why are we approaching them not like someone that we are lovingly trying to rescue and not in a patronizing way as opposed to someone that we're, we're drive-by shooting? It's like even that doesn't make sense to me. It's like from my perspective, Jesus was only harsh with the self-righteous and the arrogant. Um, I think if you have sincere questions, again, I really think there is truth. And I think that's the, the scary thing about, um, about this process is, is you need something to anchor on. And, and we could go on about that for, for days, I think. But the, the approach in dealing with people, I think we can absolutely agree with, which is there's no excuse um, for the kind of things that are written and the kinds of things that are said in dealing with these critical questions. I mean, if we've gotten away from Jesus in any way, it's that way for sure. So, so we can yeah. And, 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 and Jonathan, I want to say it's been a real, real privilege to speak with you. And I, I really love your heart and, and a lot of things that you're saying. I, I couldn't agree more. I just have a very short question if it's okay. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, I got a, I got a text from a guy named Nigel and, uh, he said that, uh, he loves your book, and he just wants to know if you would wear, or if you would wear, if you would put a honk if you love Jesus sticker on the back of your car. That's his question. <laughs> I I probably well, first of all, I, because I live in New York City, I don't I don't own a car. I okay, your bike or your moped or in about your five years. backpack. It'd have to go on the back of my jeans, probably. <laughs> in which case, the answer is no. The answer is no. But even if I. Even if I owned a car, uh, probably, probably not. Uh, but, it, but I don't have any, I don't have any real convictional reasons uh, for saying that. Well, well, if you know, okay. Well, that that ridiculous question aside, if nothing else, Jonathan, you have certainly made me much more paranoid about the words I speak. Even even leading up to this, I was like, oh shoot, oh, I can't use that word. Oh dang, uh, what does that mean? So if nothing else, you've made me very paranoid. So no, oh, but anyway, I'm so sorry. No, no, it's great. And again, like David said, appreciated your book. Even appreciated more being able to talk to you um, in person. Well, not in person, but speak to you directly about these things. That's a huge privilege in my mind. Again, uh, check out Jonathan Merritt's book, uh, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. I'm assuming it's everywhere that books are sold, Amazon, etc. Uh, Seekers and Speakers podcast, check that out, iTunes. And uh, yeah, again, thank you for coming on, Jonathan. It was a privilege. Send in your questions to provoke and inspire at comeandlive.com or any of our social media if you have questions. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Peace. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. You guys have a good day. Thank you. Appreciate it, Jonathan. Talk to you. All right. See you later. 
Thanks for listening to Provoke and Inspire, the official Come and Live podcast. To hear past podcasts, go to comeandlive.com. Got a question for the guys? Send it in to provokeandinspire at comeandlive.com. <laughs>